the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. All right, 10.07, as hour number two gets underway on this Thursday, the fourth morning of the first month of the year of our Lord, 2024. Thanks again to Attorney General Dave Yost. So I want to hit a couple of things. One, to follow up on what we just talked about, the Attorney General and I. And then to get into Saturday. This Saturday is, of course, the 6th of January. If that doesn't ring a bell, then you really haven't been paying much attention. It would be the third anniversary of the January 6th riots at the Capitol, or riot at the Capitol, which is what it was. Joe Biden is kicking off 2024 by commemorating it. Where? Um, At one of the historic sites of the Revolutionary War to indicate that this is just as much of a threat to our democracy as we have ever faced since the founding of the country. It's remarkable what he's about to do. So I'll get to that part after I follow up <clears throat> briefly <clears throat> Excuse me, on uh, what Attorney General Yost and I were just talking about, uh, specifically regarding the attempt to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in Maine and to keep him off the ballot in Colorado. As you, knew, as you know, and it was just in the newscast, and also um, the Attorney General mentioned it as well, President Trump and his team have um, challenged, officially appealed the ruling in Colorado. Uh, they're hoping to get an expedited a hearing on the case before the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court. Hopefully that will be the case. And if they do indeed get it, it will be very, very quickly overturned. But that doesn't mean that we should be satisfied. The idea that a Colorado Supreme Court or the Colorado Supreme Court could do this in the first place, denying these are judges, these are justices, denying of a citizen his rights to due process, if indeed he is accused of something, denying him the ability to have that trial so he can prove his innocence or make the state prove his guilt, denying him the right to be uh, on a ballot based upon nothing but CNN and YouTube videos is just incomprehensible. The fact that we have to go to the Supreme Court to potentially overturn this, which, it, like, like I said, it's 99.9999% chance they will. The fact that we have to go there means we're in a very, very bad place. Now we go to Maine. In Maine, it wasn't the Supreme Court, as I mentioned to, to Attorney General Yost. In Maine, it was the Secretary of State, a radical left-wing Secretary of State, who decided on her own that she didn't need a trial either. She didn't need charges to be filed against Donald J. Trump for inciting an insurrection, because none have been. She didn't need uh, 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 an indictment. She didn't need a trial. She didn't need a conviction. She just skipped all of those things and went right ahead to sentencing. You are sentenced to not having your name allowed to be on the ballot uh, for president in the state of Maine, because I find you guilty. Who is she? Her name is Shanna Bellows. She's the attorney general there. What do you want to know about her? You should know this. She believes that the entire United States system of elections, 
the Constitutional Electoral College, which gives equal rights to every state, sending electors to cast official ballots for the presidency of the United States. She calls that white supremacist. Did you, did, you, did you catch that? The person who wants Donald Trump's name off the ballot in the state of Maine, the uh, Secretary of State there, who literally removed it, stated in 2016, or I beg your pardon, stated looking back at 2016, that the Electoral College is completely outdated and said that, quote, Voting rights for our neighbors matters as much as our own, especially when the relic of white supremacy that is the Electoral College remains in place, end quote. This is the person who is making a unilateral decision to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in the state of Maine. In her ruling, she cited an insurrection clause in the 14th Amendment and his actions leading up to the Capitol riot on January 6, 2021. She declared, did the Secretary of State in the state of Maine, that Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. That Donald Trump, by inciting the insurrection, um, is is, is a threat to the democracy of the United States. Meanwhile, she is completely ignorant of the reality that her action in denying him, it's not even denying him, denying the voters of Maine to cast a ballot for the candidate of their choice is a true denial of democracy. Democracy is the act of voting for the candidate of your choice. That's what democracy is. We are not a democracy. We are a republic. The act of democracy is what's in jeopardy here. She says she's protecting democracy by denying the voters of the state of Maine the right to democracy. At the same time, denying Donald Trump due process in a court of law while pronouncing him guilty. By the way, she admitted two things you should know about her, two other things you should know about her. One, she admitted that the only thing she knows about the quote-unquote insurrection that she is ruling to, be, to have been driven and directed by Donald Trump, thus making him uh, 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 in, ineligible to be on the presidential ballot, the only thing she knows is what she saw on YouTube. That's number one. Number two... She's not even a lawyer. Did you catch that? She's not a lawyer. Yet she is pronouncing guilt in a court of law that never existed. In a trial that never happened. On charges that were never filed. She's not even a lawyer. She admitted, listen, listen to what CNN said. This is, my, did I mention this is not Newsmax? Did I mention this is not Fox? This is CNN? Is were the processes, were these hearings fair? Did they comport with due process? And I think there's a question there with regard to what Maine did. Because if you look at the hearing, and she details this in the, in the ruling, they heard from one fact witness, a law professor. She based her ruling on a lot of documents, but also YouTube clips, news reports, things that would never pass the bar in normal court. She's not a lawyer, by the way. It's a smartly written decision, clearly consulted with lawyers, but this is an unelected. She's chosen by the state legislature. She's elected by the state legislature. uh, Chosen, elected by the legislature, but not democratically elected. Not a knock. That's just the way it's set up in Maine. And this hearing, look, it doesn't have to be a criminal trial. We don't have to have all the protections. But I think the argument you'll hear from opponents is, one, 
not up to the states to do this. This is why we have all different decisions from all different states. And two, the procedures were not up to snuff. Even the legal analyst at CNN said, number one, she's not a lawyer. Number two, she is relying on things that she saw on YouTube. She's relying on things that the press wanted her to see. In other words, trial in the court of public opinion, not in an actual court, not in a criminal court, not in a civil court, just the court of public opinion. And because in her mind, what Donald Trump did by the, the, the reporting of the court of public opinion was insurrection. Therefore, he's not allowed to be on the ballot. And she isn't even in a position to, to ascertain that. She's not a judge. She's not even a member of the bar. She's not a lawyer. So I just want to underscore those things. It should be very, very quick. Any Supreme Court ruling on Trump's viability or eligibility as a candidate in 2024 in one state should cover all of the other states that are going to try to use the 14th Amendment, uh, third section, to try to invalidate him. All it's going to take is one ruling by the Supreme Court in Colorado or in Maine, and all of the rest of this nonsense goes away. And while we can then say, all right, phew, the system works, it still shouldn't it should still not give us cause for celebration or or relief because the fact that they even tried this is is just so detrimental to true democracy to true um american liberty that's the reality all right now let me get to biden joe biden has announced the white house has announced that he's going to start his 2024 campaign by delving into what they are calling some of the country's darkest moments because why not he's going to evoke the revolutionary war kicking off the darkest moments tour by uh spending the third anniversary of the deadly insurrection as it's being called by the ap (laughs) uh and it was deadly for um for ashley babbitt but uh really not for anybody else um Anyway, at the U.S. Capitol and visiting the South Carolina church where a white gunman massacred black parishioners. Seeking to present in the starkest possible terms an election he argues could determine the fate of American democracy. We just discovered uh, discussed democracy in some depth. Biden's going to travel near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where George Washington and the Continental Army spent a bleak winter nearly 250 years ago. There he'll decry Donald Trump for the riot by a mob of his supporters who overran the Capitol, again, this is AP verbiage, in an attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Two two days later, he will visit Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, where nine people were shot and killed in a white supremacist attack. Now, this is how he's going to launch his 2024 presidential campaign, by delving into the darkest moments of the country. Um, Instead of, I don't know, does anybody remember Morning in America? Do you remember the campaign that Ronald Reagan ran? It is time for morning, a new morning in America where optimism was the message, where hope was the message, where growth, where freedom were the message, where opportunity, unbounding opportunity before all of us was the message. And you remember how phenomenally well that turned out? Joe Biden is literally going in the other direction. He's going to draw for the American people a picture of hate. He's going to draw for the American people a picture of division. He's going to draw for the American people a picture of of darkness, of bleakness, saying that rather than I can bring light to this country, he is saying you better keep Trump away because he will bring darkness. He will bring white supremacist shootings of black churches. 
He will bring more pain and misery and suffering like the kind that was experienced on January 6th. Joe Biden and his allies are a real and compelling threat to our democracy. One of the campaign senior advisors wrote in a memo this week, in fact, in a way never seen before in our history, they are waging a war against democracy. Mind you, that's the party that is trying to stop Trump's name from being on the ballot. A true denial of democracy, saying that Donald Trump will be responsible for the assault on democracy if he wins again. So I just I want you to understand exactly how deep and dark and dedicated to division. That's a lot of alliteration. I apologize. Um, how dedicated to division the Biden administration and the American left truly is. The Democrat National Committee, the Biden campaign, all they have is orange man bad, orange man evil, orange man will lead to white supremacist uh, supremacy, to uh, uh, more uh, uh, evoking of Hitler, um, and and to more racism and so on and so forth. That will the planet will die because he will take us out of all of this ridiculous gangrene nonsense that Biden and Kerry have gotten us into. Something we're going to talk about with Steve Gorman in just a few. That's their dedication. Their dedication and their devotion is to division. Again, sorry for the um, alliteration. Now, having given that backdrop, I want to give you this. Now, this is a rather extensive piece of audio that I'm going to play for you, and I think it's worth our time. Brandon Strzok is one of the January 6th um, victims. And by victims, meaning they, that he is one of those who has been charged as a political and treated as a political prisoner. And he is fighting tooth and nail for freedom, not just his, but for those of all of the other January 6th um, uh, gulag detention, gulag detention held uh, political prisoners right now. But also those who just happen to be in Washington at the Capitol, not necessarily even inside, whose lives have been turned upside down because Biden's government has declared them to be terrorists. Not making that up at all please listen by now you probably know that all january 6 defendants and even many people who were never charged with crimes have been placed on various terrorism watch lists by the u.s government one such list is tsa's quad s list or as i was told by a tsa agent the highest level terrorism list that you can be on and still be allowed to fly so is there a higher level threat level than quad s no, sir. Quad S is that's uh, when the airline marks you for additional screening, basically. So, um, other than that, there's no real. There's only one threat, basically, and that's uh, when you show up as Quad S. That's what it shows up as. Okay. Yeah, there's no real higher. So that's as higher, high as it gets. Basically, anything higher, you'd be on a top no ten flight. wanted list or something like. On that. a what? You'd be on like on a wanted list or something. A like wanted that. list. Quad S is usually it depends on it could come for a multitude of reasons. Uh, you can fly to a quote unquote dangerous area. So say if you fly to Syria or someplace like that, they'd mark you as a quad S or something like that. Do they tell you why they put you on the list in the first place? Probably not. Immediately after January sixth, every person who was accused of a crime, even a low level nonviolent misdemeanor, ended up finding themselves on this list. Nobody knew why or how. All we knew was that anybody that the government had accused had been placed on this list and was being subjected to hours of harassment at the airport when they tried to travel. As of the last few weeks, we have finally uncovered the truth of why J6ers have been placed 
on the Quad S terrorism watch list. Just five days after January 6th, when we knew very few facts about the incident and what had truly transpired or who was responsible for what had happened, Congressman Benny Thompson, who headed the January 6th Select Committee, wrote a letter to the administrator of TSA, David Pikowski. In the letter, which again was written just days after January 6th, at a time when we knew virtually nothing about the people who were involved in the incident, Congressman Benny Thompson wrote this. Dear Administrator Pekoski, last Wednesday, insurrectionists attacked the U.S. Capitol, intent on preventing the certification of a democratic election and, apparently, inflicting violence upon elected officials. Federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies were completely unprepared for this domestic terror attack. Despite the importance of the proceedings occurring in the Capitol, the presence of the first three officials in the presidential line of succession, and substantial evidence the attack was planned largely in open internet forums. Several lives were lost, including at least one Capitol Police officer, and many more were injured and placed at grave risk. In the aftermath of the attack, its perpetrators have continued to enjoy freedom of movement throughout the country. Only a fraction of the insurrectionists have been arrested, and many of those have been released pending a future court date. To our knowledge, the federal government has not prevented a single insurrectionist from boarding an aircraft. Several have harassed and threatened to harm members of Congress, flight crew members, and the public while traveling. Now, growing online chatter indicates the members of many of the same groups that planned and carried out Wednesday's attack intend to return to Washington, D.C. to cause further disruption and violence in the coming days, including at the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. Despite this imminent threat, it appears little is being done to disrupt the travel of terrorists who just attacked the seat of the U.S. government and wish to do so again. Therefore, please provide a briefing not later than the end of this week on the following topics. Current efforts to disrupt the travel of white supremacists and other domestic terror groups who may be planning further attacks against the U.S. government and may be targeting the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. Options available for quickly denying air carrier service to individuals identified as posing a potential threat, including TSA's authorities to prevent individuals from flying on a temporary or flight-by-flight -flight basis. The current status of efforts to identify and add to watch lists the perpetrators of Wednesday's attack and the standards being used to determine their vetting status for future travel, plans to protect surface transportation from potential threats, and efforts to protect members of Congress, flight crew members, and the public from domestic terror groups and sympathizers while traveling. Thank you for your prompt attention to these critical matters. Sincerely, Benny Thompson. After the execution of that letter, every January 6th defendant, including people with misdemeanor trespassing charges for being on the grounds of the Capitol, not even inside the building on January 6th, were immediately considered white supremacists, domestic terrorists, and insurrectionists. And because of that, all of these people, including myself, have been subjected to hours of harassment when trying to board a flight at the airport. This includes a process that can take hours for travelers on this list to be able to board an aircraft. And it includes having a TSA security lane shut down specifically just for you. TSA agents make you walk through the body scanner multiple times, do full body pat downs, take pictures of your IDs, take pictures of your boarding passes. They take every item out of your bag and swab it for explosive materials. They swab your hands, they swab your feet, they test them for explosive materials. All of this, just a reminder, if you were at the Capitol, not even inside, not even quote-unquote guilty of trespassing, a misdemeanor. 
but even just outside, just there in the crowd, and did nothing wrong, this is what your life is like now. Aerials, they put their hands inside of your pants. They grope your genitals. They grope your backside. And by the time this arduous process is over, which can sometimes take hours, they then have a team of agents follow you around the airport everywhere you go and station themselves around you at the gate. At all times, there's anywhere from 7 or 8 to sometimes 12 to 15 TSA agents stationed all around you. And sometimes they bring dogs. They bring a special piece of equipment to the gate where they can once again take every item out of your bag and swab it for explosive materials. They do this a second time after they've just done it at the TSA clearance check, but this time they do it in front of all of the other passengers as you're boarding the plane. All right, there's another three minutes of this, but I think you get the idea. The government has weaponized, has been weaponized against civilians, American civilians who did nothing more than express their First Amendment constitutional rights to protest or to petition the government for a redress of grievances. First Amendment rights to assembly and petitioning the government for a redress of grievances on January 6, 2021. That's all these people did. And look at what their lives have become. This isn't just those who have been charged with, charged with violent crimes. Those people are being held in gulags. But people who just showed up and went down there to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard, now on terror watch list and being subjected to that assault on basic human dignity and freedom by the United States government. We're going to take a time out here at the bottom of the hour. We're going to come back and we're going to talk uh, with Steve Gorham. Energy. Biden's assault on all things fossil fuel related and what we are going to what kind of a price we are going to pay as a result of that we'll talk to steve gorham next day here on always right radio am 1420 the answer all right onward now it is 10 35 <clears throat> appreciate you being with us on this thursday uh thanks again to attorney general dave yost a little bit earlier on we'll come we'll come back and take calls on the uh, audio that you just heard as well from brandon strock but i want to pivot now <clears throat> To talk about uh, energy and to talk about uh, the ongoing Biden administration assault on fossil fuels and worse. Um, If you did not yet see the hour plus long deep dive that I did with Steve Gorham on Strictly Speaking, I highly recommend you do that. You can do so at at watchtrueblue.com. Remember, no E's on true or blue. Watch TRUBLU.com or just catch one of the replays of the interview that we did on uh, Roku or on Plex or on TCL TV+. But Steve Gorham, who is the executive director of climate science, the Climate Science Coalition of America, uh, gave us a very, very deep dive into the reality of climate change and the reality of um, fossil fuels, carbon, and the ongoing attempt to essentially flip not only the United States but the world uh, economy uh, into a green economy, into a renewable economy, uh, saying that they can just phase out fossil fuels with no problems whatsoever. That deep dive that Steve gave us before is must-see viewing. But we're going to talk about some changes, or not changes really, but some updates to some of that information as we welcome Steve back to the program now. Steve, as I said, is Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America. He's the author of four books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development with over 100,000 copies in print. His newest, Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, just came out in August, something you should grab as quickly as you can. Steve Gorham, good to have you back here on the radio side of things. How are you? Hey, Bob. Doing great. Happy New Year. Great to join you again. Happy New Year to you as well. 
So let's dive right into this. COP28 was a, what, 13-day-long international summit from all of the globalist leaders who got together to pronounce uh, an end to fossil fuels uh, worldwide and uh, the embracing of renewable technologies. Biden praised the entire thing. What are your thoughts on what you heard from Biden and his climate czar, John Kerry, at COP28, Steve? Yeah, well, there were just so many crazy outlandish things uh, we had uh, uh, the, the uh, supposedly the, the big uh, success of the COP28 uh, in United Arab Emirates was an agreement to to uh, phase out coal, oil, and natural gas, to phase out so-called fossil fuels, and uh, President Biden has praised that now. Uh, that that is just a crazy kind of stuff. We had all kinds of uh, uh, subtitles to that. We had. Uh, uh, Mr. Kerry talking about uh, uh, banning all coal-fired power plants across the world. Just a crazy statement. There are uh, 4,000 of those out there today, and they're building another 1,000. And 35% of the electricity of the world is generated by coal-fired power plants. Uh, we had uh, uh, former presidential candidate and Senator Hillary Clinton uh, uh who wants to start counting climate deaths. If you remember during the COVID-19 crisis, every day you could look on the Internet and see all the people that had died every day. They had a, a running count. Well, she wants to do the same thing with, with climate change. And it has literally become the biggest excuse for everything, everything from California wildfires uh, to uh, the uh, immigrants that are coming across our border uh, the president's press secretary was saying that was due to climate change the other day. So it, it, it's just a, a remarkable uh, a thing and, and uh, a very unfortunate for today's society and, and the trends that are going forward on energy. Yeah, and, and let's talk about some of those trends. And you're right. And first of all, if I may, the idea of stopping all of the coal-fired power plants is completely erroneous not just is it misguided and impossible, but it is also erroneous in terms of the fact that there is some sort of a global agreement to this because China is building one coal-fired power plant after another. Meanwhile, the United States, the biggest geopolitical adversary of the Chi Communist Chinese Party, uh, is is pledging to to uh, to demolish all of theirs, to to um, uh, destroy all of those that are ex in existence, and to build no more. Meanwhile, China continues to build new coal-fired power plants. How does that work, Steve? They do, yeah. There's, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, global emissions are going to continue to rise, despite what uh, Europe and the United States do. Uh, we've had uh, uh, a 44% increase in global carbon dioxide emissions uh, over the last two decades, and folks are saying, well, we need to cut those 40% by the year 2030. That's just not going to happen. It's not only China. It's India. It's Indonesia. It's Southeast Asia. There are many, many places that are building coal plants, and they should be. We have a shortage of electricity today globally. We have 700 million people that don't have access to electricity, and there's another 2 billion people that have blackouts or brownouts every day or every other day. There are literally uh, more than 100 hospitals in poor nations that don't have electricity, if you can imagine that. So this, this is just crazy, and, and to say that we need to get rid of all the coal plants has no regard for for the people of the earth, it's, it's you know, it's sort of like uh, Marie Antoinette saying, I'll let them eat cake. <laughs> uh, 
the uh, the developing nations really need uh, electrical power from these these facilities. Yeah, no question about it. So, Steve Gorham, executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America, let's talk about some of these uh, forced uh, uh, measures that they want us to take, including getting rid of our gas furnaces, getting rid of our gas stoves, getting rid of yeah. uh, virtually anything and everything that uses natural gas, replacing it with electric appliances that we won't have the ability to power because of what you just pointed out, uh, the elimination of the coal-fired power plants. Well, yeah, that's kind of crazy. So, so uh, what what folks want us to do is uh, uh, take all of our our cars and get rid of gasoline, make them electric, and uh, get rid of all of our gas appliances, make them electric, so that when you have a power outage, not only will your lights not work, but you won't be able to drive and you won't be able to heat your house either. Um, <laughs> doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, uh, but these appliances are more expensive as well. Uh, if you're any, if you're in any northern latitudes, uh, we, uh, my wife and I have a, a house down in uh, Virginia Beach. Uh, we have a heat pump in the house, which works pretty well until it gets down to about 30 degrees Fahrenheit, and then just kind of poops out. It won't heat the uh, facility anymore. Yet we have places like uh, uh, Washington State and New York and uh, Minnesota and a lot of others that are talking about converting everybody to an electric heat pump, getting rid of the gas stove or getting rid of their propane uh, furnaces and appliances. Just a very very bad idea. Going to be very expensive, and it's not going to work very well. Uh, so, again, all of this is driven by the ideology of climatism, the fear of man-made warming. And uh, uh, both uh, Mr. Ramaswamy and uh, a candidate, uh, former President Trump, are using that term now to describe the ideology. Uh, just a bad thing for society uh, overall. Uh, that's an understatement. Um, we're talking to Steve Gorman, the executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America. So, Steve, let's talk about EVs and where things stand now. We continue to hear from the administration that the goal, and I don't know if they're calling it a goal or a hopeful or a requirement, to change 50% of the internal combustion engine vehicles on our roads today into EVs by 2030. We are now just six years away from that. Is that realistic? Well, it isn't. We've had a number of states that are uh, planning to ban internal combustion engine gasoline cars uh, by 2035. Those include uh, California, uh, New York, uh, Washington State, Oregon, Massachusetts, and some others. And then our federal government has not tried to push forward a ban, but we have going. What we have going on is the Environmental Protection Agency has uh, both mileage standards that they keep tightening and carbon dioxide emissions standards that they they keep tightening. And within about 10 years, it is going to be impossible for any uh, automaker to make a gasoline car that that will meet these standards. It just won't be possible. Uh, But at the same time, we have uh, uh, EVs have hit a speed bump this last year. Uh, we have faltering electric vehicle demand. EV inventories at Ford and General Motors are up over 300%. There's very uh, poor interest, poor demand for EV pickup trucks, which is a lot of the U.S. market now is gasoline pickup trucks. Ford Motor losing uh, between 40 and 60,000 on each electric vehicle sold. So we, the the early adopter phase is over. The folks that want to get an EV as a second car or the uh, the wealthy folks that can pay uh, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars for an EV have those, and now the, the folks that uh, live in northern climates where it's hard to, to charge EVs in the winter, or who have an apartment building, don't want to run an extension cord over the sidewalk to try and 
charge their EVs, and folks that just can't afford them are really not interested. Uh, so uh, we, we're hitting the speed bump. Nevertheless, the Biden administration wants to keep stepping on the gas and pushing forward with these electric vehicles. Yeah, it, it, kind of funny putting their foot on the gas, <laughs> but uh, but not gas. Um, so <laughs> so let's let's talk about what you call in your book, Steve, a green breakdown. I mean, is that just a kind of an all-encompassing title for everything that we just discussed, phasing out fossil fuels while our enemies continue to embrace them? Uh, getting rid of our electric appliances, uh, dealing with uh, you know the exorbitant costs of EVs that are being mandated almost in some states and in others, um, you know made impossible to buy to buy the uh, the internal combustion engine vehicles. Is that what the green breakdown is? Yeah, the book the book Green Breakdown is about this this forced energy transition that is underway mm-hmm. in the wealthy nations of the world, uh, the United States, Europe, Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand, and some others. Uh, want to push for net zero by 2050, which means getting rid of coal, coal, oil, and natural gas, getting rid of just about all emissions, capturing uh, carbon dioxide where where we can't get rid of the emissions. Uh, they're pushing to do this. This is a complete change of our energy economy, and it is going to crash. It's just not. It's not going to make it. Uh, what's going to happen as we push for uh, wind, solar, and biofuels? Uh, we're going to have higher energy prices. We're going to have electricity blackouts. Uh, the push for electric vehicles and the bans on vehicles and gas appliances mean less freedom for people. And we're going to have what I call transnational energy shocks, like they're still uh, finishing up in Europe. Uh, they've had uh, natural gas prices go up by two and a half times from two years ago. Electricity prices are up by a factor of three. And if you're in England, uh, people are going to bed early to stay warm, and they're putting newspaper on the inside of their windows uh, to try and keep to insulate their houses. Uh, there's a tremendous loss of standard of living because of their push for renewables. So this is going to crash. Uh, people are going to uh, return and demand a low-cost, re- reliable energy. And uh, we'll see. We've already seen some of the first signs of this, I think. I was predicting a decade out, but uh, uh, the EV speed bump, the failure of uh, wind systems off the East Coast, the plunge in... Uh, in the price of uh, renewable energy stocks over the last three years all indicate that maybe this uh, breakdown has begun. Yeah. Um, the question is, is if a breakdown begins, how do we begin the rebuild? I mean, because, I, you know, Steve, you and I have talked about this in some depth before, but I feel like going back to our first topic of discussion right now the, on this, this, this chat, the fossil fuel yeah. phase out. The fossil fuel phase out would necessarily include the elimination of oil and the drilling for oil, which, of course, would necessarily include the elimination of all petrochemical products, which include everything. And I mean everything that you and I are using right now, what we're sitting on, the clothes we're wearing, the computer technology that we are using would all be gone. I mean, quite literally, and I don't mean to be hyperbolic about this, but I really do believe it's literal. They are talking about returning to the Stone Ages, where every tool that we have is either stone or wood. And I don't even know if that could even be done because we wouldn't be allowed to use gas-powered chainsaws to cut down the trees in, in, in rapid order. Uh, and, and then, you know, trucks to take them to, uh, you know, to, uh, 
you know, uh, carpentry centers and so forth to produce these products. I mean, quite literally, everything that we use relies on petrochemicals. If we get rid of petrochemicals, we get rid of oil and petrochemicals. Is that, am, nope. I, am I off base on what, where we would No, be? you're right. And there's, there's a lot of other things I could add. Your cell phones are made out of plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, our medical supplies come from plastics, and, and all of our medicines come from chemicals that are made from uh, petrochemicals. Uh, uh, shoes are, uh, suits are, ties are synthetics. I mean, all these things come from oil and natural gas, and the idea is that we can get rid of these is just crazy. Also, all of our heavy industry uh, comes from, from uh, uh, hydrocarbons, production of ammonia or cement or, or plastics or steel. A cement doesn't come from hydrocarbons, but but it comes from calcium carbonate. And when you uh, make cement for uh, when you make uh, a cement for concrete, you emit all kinds of carbon dioxide. So this is just a part of modern society. It is not going to disappear, and that's why we're going to have a breakdown of this this idea of this uh, net zero transition. We're talking to Steve Gorham, executive director of Climate, the uh, Climate Science Coalition of America. Um, why it's kind of funny i had a conversation with a different gentleman yesterday <clears throat> about um, free speech and 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 i asked the question similar to him that i'm going to ask you i asked him why would the world's leading superpower if you will or the most uh, you know the most powerful nation on earth cede its right its rights to globalist um, interests when it comes to uh, free speech and the ability to to express and and that of course comes from also cop twenty eight in which the u n uh, chief uh, declared that they are going to establish a global disinformation center that all member nations would re- be required to uh, to adhere to to silence things that they call disinformation. I said, why would the world's most powerful country want to submit to something on a global scale like that and I'm going to ask you the same question: <clears throat> Why would a country like ours? which has uh, built itself into the world's leading superpower economically and militarily and in every other way, why would we go along with something that is going to bring us down to uh, an even playing field and thus accessible to uh, a whole bunch of other bad actors who don't necessarily like the fact that we are on top? Why would we do that? Yeah, and it's funny. Why, why, do our, why would our leaders uh, decide to give in to this? But, but you're right. The, uh, the, uh, the fear of, uh, of climatism, uh, human man-made global warming is being used for all sorts of different things. The United Nations, for example, for many years has had a number of objectives. One is to improve the environment, but another is is world government. Uh, Jacques Chirac, former president of, uh, president of France, said the first climate meetings were the first example of world government. Uh, they also want to redistribute wealth from the United States and other wealthy nations to the developing nations, and the, the tool of man-made global warming can be very effective in doing that. And then, as you say, the United States is the biggest producer of petroleum in the world. We're the biggest producer of natural gas, biggest uh, exporter of liquefied natural gas. We kept the lights on in Europe last year by importing liquefied, uh, by exporting liquefied natural gas. Uh, we're the biggest producer of, of uh, liquid petroleum gas and propane. We ship that to India so people don't have to burn uh, uh, dung or charcoal in their homes. They can use gas. And and today we seem to want to give away that advantage and import everything from China, all these materials. Uh, we import 80% of our uh, solar panels from China, which are made uh, uh, using coal, and everybody thinks uh, they're so environmentally friendly. <laughs> so it doesn't make a lot of sense, in, as you point out, in many, many ways. 
No, it really does not. It's um, it's a it's a it's a mystery to me how and why we could put ourselves in this position. But what I do want people to know is that the reality is out there about climate change. If you want to know what carbon really does in our in our atmosphere, if you want to know whether it's the big boogeyman that we all need to be terrified of and our carbon footprint is going to kill us all, if you uh, truly believe that the planet is warming because of human activity and that there are not cycles. Uh, that have gone on for for you know centuries and literally eons of what happens in this country and how we are not or in this uh, planet I should say and we are not in control of it. Follow Steve Gorham's work. Follow the Climate Science Coalition of America, Steve. Uh, and I'm going to tell everybody to get your book, Green Breakdown: The Coming Renewable Energy Failure, as well. Uh, where else can people find your work? Yeah, Steve, uh, from my website, stevegorham.com, G-O-R-E-H-A-M. I'll send them signed copies of the books. Uh, of course, uh, there are ebooks and they're on Amazon as well. And people people really need to educate themselves and then push back when they want to uh, build a wind system in your town or they want to build a big solar uh, a facility next to your town. Push back against that. Uh, push back against laws that are banning your gas stoves and and your uh, gasoline cars. And uh, challenge your political leaders. Let's let's get back to sensible energy policy. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for that information so people know where to find you. And keep up the great work. Tell the truth. We have enough people out there telling lies about what's going on and what this uh, this green energy movement is all about. So keep up the t- uh, terrific work, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Steve Gorham. And don't forget to watch my uh, deep dive interview with Steve that we did on Strictly Speaking. If you are not yet tuned into Strictly Speaking, we try to provide you as many uh, uh, kind of clips and samples and so forth as possible online. I do that on my social media. But uh, strictly speaking, we did uh, Steve Gorham about three weeks back. I think that one aired. And uh, these are always being replayed on our fast channels on Roku, Channel 529, as well as Plex and uh, TCL Plus TV, soon to be coming to Tubi as well. But you can also watch them on demand those are free. The fast channels are free, but you can watch them on demand if you're a subscriber to True Blue, which you can uh, certainly do at watchtrueblue.com, watch, T-R-U-B-L-U, trueblue.com, and you can watch those on demand. But the uh, conversation and the deep uh, dive that we did with, uh, with Steve Gorham is certainly worth your time. All right, it's 10.55. We're going to get a timeout. After the top of the hour, we're going to talk more about the bigotry of low expectations that continues to surround uh, the Claudine Gay Harvard story and, quite frankly, African-Americans all over the country. We're going to talk to uh, Adam Coleman, the president of Ain't Blackistan. He's a black guy, (laughs) and he does not like the way his people are being treated by the left, which seems to believe that they can't do things on their own. They need all kinds of assistance, that black is a handicap. We're going to talk to Adam Coleman about that next. Stay here on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. Yeah, you better believe it. This is radio that is always right, and you can take that however you wish. Eight minutes after 11 o'clock now, and we're underway in hour number three. It's the fourth morning of the first month of the year of our Lord, 2024. Did you know that being black in America was a handicap? We're finding that out every day, and with every black Twitter uh, message that you see referencing Claudine Gay, the uh, now former president of Harvard University, once thought to be the most elite academic institution in the world, or at least the United States, for the first time, they had a black president 
Six months later, she's gone, and that's because being black is a handicap. Did you know that she had a right to keep that job because she's black? Because not enough black people are in enough positions of power, and we have to give them positions of power because they can't get there on their own. Now, obviously, I don't believe one single word of what I'm saying to you right now, but that is literally what the response has been to Claudine Gay's ouster. Never mind the fact that Claudine Gay, who was removed as president of Harvard, largely for the same reason that Liz McGill was removed as president of the University of Pennsylvania for the same hearing in the same congressional uh, committee in which they refused to condemn uh, anti-Semitic hate speech and more specifically calls for genocide of Jews uh, from the river to the sea. One is white, one is black. One, nobody raised a fuss when they booted her over. The other one, it is World War III. Joining me now is Adam Coleman. He is an author. He's a columnist. He is the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing, and he's the president of Ain't Blackistan. Adam Coleman, welcome back to uh, AM 1420, The Answer here in Cleveland. It's good to have you. How are you? I'm doing well. <laughs> Thank you. So this is some crazy stuff. First of all, I want, I want to point people to your uh, Twitter feed and to your, your most recent column, which is uh, in Newsweek, memo to Claude, Claudine Gay and her champions, being black is not a handicap. People need to read this on their own. But for now, let's get a little summary here. Uh, Adam, it's literally in the beginning of your, of your article, being black is not a handicap, but it's become clear that many of the people who are the supposed allies of black Americans are nothing more than those who nef- are nefariously paternalistic when it comes to your existence. Please tell us more. Well, basically, everything that comes out of their mouth comes from a standpoint of knowing more than us, um, speaking for us, and they also believe that they must speak for us, and they must speak on a group level. And the commonality that I see more often is that these people aren't like myself, even though they might be black and they might be a leftist. uh, Oftentimes, they're of the higher income earner status. You know, they're in a completely different tax bracket than myself. Uh, they're top elite schools, and you know, in academia. And they believe that they know what ills me as a regular black American who's just trying to go day by day and, su- and survive like everybody else is. Um, and they know the right path uh, for me, and they always want to speak for me. And that's the problem that I have with these people is that it's, it's very much so a paternalistic viewpoint as to what ails the black American. And it's always something that is of the exterior, right? It's external. It's a system, right? Which system? Well, every system. Well, if it's every system, then how do we fight it? Well, let us deal with that. We'll fight it for you. You just stay still and do nothing while we take care of it for you. And meanwhile, nothing changes. Yeah. Meanwhile, nothing changes. And that's, um, that's exactly the point. Um, when you talk about paternalistic, um, explain that part of this. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's more so the way that they speak about us as if we are children, like as, as if we're infants. You know, like if you have a small baby, a baby can't get its own food. Mm-hmm. It can't do much for itself. It, it's dependent on the parent to do it as it, uh, as it grows older. The way they talk about us, is like, in order for us to get a job, we must be elevated by someone else, right? And on top of that, what's also kind of crazy in my eyes is if white people are the oppressors, 
then they're telling us that we must wait for white people to give us jobs and to give us opportunities because it's the right thing to do. And it, <laughs> it's, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, meanwhile, they never explain why they have been able to find success. How come they are able to make as much money as they're able to make and, and reach the status that they've been able to reach? Well, they're exceptional. I'm reading in response to um, the forced resignation of Claudine Gay, Adam, which is something you wrote about. I'm reading uh, a lot of the, this is an attack on diversity itself. It's an attack on black women. It's an attack on blacks, uh, uh, generally speaking, but, but really on diversity itself. And that people like Claudine Gay and other blacks, particularly in academia, but I think they're talking about in all positions of leadership, corporate or otherwise, that they have to be three or four times better than everybody else to get the job. That's what I'm reading, and like I said, in tweets from you know some of the, the, the loudest, strongest black voices on, on what is sometimes referred to as black Twitter as they rage against this forced resignation. Uh, how do you respond to those folks who say that a black person has to be three or four times better to get one of these leading positions over a, a white counterpart? In my opinion, that type of statement is loser speak. <clears throat> it's victimology, right? Because it automatically says that you're at a handicap. And so you must do all types of things to overcome that handicap. And that handicap is that you're black. And it's, it's this mindset that you're always behind and you're supposed to expect to lose and be gracious um, when you finally win, right? But it, it's like encouraging imposter syndrome is basically what they're, um, what they're saying. I, I personally think that these people are pulling a leftist uh, sleight of hand when it comes to race. There's a pattern that I always see. There's an outrage that this person who is a multimillionaire, who is at the top of their game, didn't get an opportunity. And so I and other working class, poor black Americans must find some sort of kinship and raise outrage on behalf of the upper class black. And I just don't see it whatsoever. Um, I don't see how Claudine Gay being the president of Harvard benefits me or hurts me whatsoever, because it doesn't. Uh, this is all just it's virtue signaling. And what you're seeing from many of the loudest voices is that they fall somewhere within that bracket. Um, and they fall somewhere within that tax bracket as well. We're talking to Adam B. Coleman. He's an author. He's a columnist. He's the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing. He also has a substack. I would point you to adambcoleman.substack.com. <clears throat> Ibram X. Kendi, you quote him in the, uh, in the Newsweek article that you wrote uh, and his tweet that racist mobs won't stop until they topple all black people from positions of power and influence who are not reinforcing the structure of racism. Um, he's one of the more extreme voices that, that we're talking about here. How is it, as you ask, how is it racist to say when you cheat, you are you should be held accountable and that your skin color should not be a coat of armor that deflects criticism from you for your decision to cheat, as in the form of 50 examples uh, and instances of that are known of plagiarism? Well, th this is also what leftists do. They rationalize immoral behavior, right? They rationalize unethical behavior, and they use race as a shield from criticism. Ibram X. Kendi has done it for himself. 
Um, he's doing it for other people. And remember, he works at Boston University. He's of academia, right? So these are their people. There aren't a lot of um, academics, so to speak, in, in comparison to the population. So they are clubs, and they're always going to defend each other, and especially if they're at elite universities. Uh, you know, they're always going to defend each other, and especially if they're part of, uh, if they're believers in this leftist ideology, which even Rex Kendi is like the godfather of it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, he is a true believer when it comes to this grift. Um, so he's going to defend her uh, no matter what. He's going to rationalize everything that happened. Um, these, this is why you see the intellectual type uh, defending the most insane behavior. Uh, they defend criminals. They defend criminality. And we know that they wouldn't allow that in their gated neighborhoods, right? Because that's where these people live. Um, they wouldn't allow this behavior, but they'll allow this behavior to happen where poor people live. It is acceptable to rationalize the behavior of immoral people when poor people are the ones who are being affected. Adam, um, Mark Lamont Hill is somebody you didn't include in uh, some of the references uh, in the Newsweek article, but he tweeted very directly, the next president of Harvard must be a black female. Didn't mention a word about merit, didn't mention a word about having experience as a president of another university, anything that might actually be of consideration to the board of trustees or directors or whomever makes this decision at Harvard, this just must be a black female. If it's not a black female, then Harvard is doing it wrong. What do you say to Mark Lamont Hill? Well, what was funny was that when someone said, well, if we put Candace Owens or uh, this black female conservative into that role, would you, would you like that? And his response was, so you think you could just swap this out and then? And, <laughs> you know, and he, he, he's literally advocating that we swap out one black woman and put in another one. Yes. But what's, what's, what's even more um, subtle, if you pay attention to his tweet, he says black woman, but he puts black in a capital B. The, the black in the capital B for him as an ideologue is referencing political blackness, which is leftist, right? So you must put in a leftist black woman into that position. That is ultimately what he is trying to say, and which is why he, he casts away the unfavorable black female candidates who do not fulfill political blackness. Well, you know, and it's one thing for somebody to say, what about Candace Owens? But but the, the better one to me that I've watched over the last couple of days of this very entertaining but yet very disturbing uh, dialogue on, on what happened to Claudine Gay or what she did to herself, quite frankly, um, is Dr. Mm -hmm. Swain, Dr. Carol Swain, an accomplished scholar, the woman whose work Claudine Gay lifted. Dr. Carol Swain is a brilliant academic. Um, she is not uh, a leftist. She is also not, I wouldn't call her right wing. She is, I think, right of center uh, uh, more than not. But nonetheless, she's extraordinarily qualified, qualified. She actually broke the glass ceiling or cracked it that uh, some of the others who are criticizing what happened to Claudine Gay get, tried to give uh, Claudine Gay credit for. Um, mm -hmm. Literally, she, she used Dr. Carol Swain's work. How do you think she would go over as the next president of Harvard? Well, she wouldn't. <laughs> she wouldn't even come anywhere close. Um, that's one, another piece that I wrote. The most important thing to Harvard is status, money, and leftist ideology. 
and they're willing to use any of that to get what they want, right? So their ultimate goal at Harvard is to find someone who fulfills the, um, the leftist ideology platform that upholds the status uh, of Harvard and continues the cash flow that comes in. So that's what they're ultimately looking for. Um, I don't. I don't think Carol Swain will come anywhere close to, to fulfilling that obligation. Yeah, but it's just funny, like I said, because so much of her work was used for Claudine Gay's uh, academic uh, portfolio or, or vitae or whatever you know, whatever writings she has done, uh, and, and yet only in the person of Claudine Gay would said work be accepted as being good enough to to lead Harvard. So you're you're exactly right. Uh, I want to pivot to another conversation that's somewhat related to this. Elon Musk. Uh, has has I don't know if I would say he started it or if he just continued it, but um, he made a declaration that has a lot of people very upset. Uh, I mm-hmm. retweeted it and uh, and support it. He said discrimination on the basis of race, which DEI does, is literally the definition of racism. Now he's being roasted by some of the same people you wrote about and we've already talked about. But I wanted to get your thoughts specifically on his statement. Is DEI which is what Elon Musk declared literally the definition of racism in your mind. So DEI is um, the definition of, uh, actually, DEI practices racism if by what they're doing is hiring specifically because of race. If DEI functionality was um, more like the Rooney rule in football, where you provide opportunities for all different types of candidates to interview, then it wouldn't be, I wouldn't have as much of an issue. It just provides people an opportunity to get the job and whoever is the best candidate wins. And I don't think most people would have a problem with that. The problem is that DEI, uh, when it is fulfilled like leftists want it to be fulfilled, is to uh, fulfill the equity portion, which is having uh, the same outcome no matter which demographic is in place. So, they're forcing outcomes, which means that there's quotas, ultimately. And, and if you're having a quota system, you're going to discriminate somebody. Uh, so whether it be that they're disproportionately hiring white women because women are part of the, uh, the, oppressor, the oppressed structure, mm-hmm. right? And, or if you're going down to black females or black males or transgender or whatever, um, they're going to try to fulfill these DEI obligations. Um, and so you're going to discriminate people along the way. So I think discriminating people based off of who they sleep with or the way they look, um, I think is ultimately destructive, especially in a, in a work environment. Um, it, it creates an extra level of hostility. But even worse, it brings a level of... Um, curiosity if someone deserves to be there. And I think that's the most destructive thing that happens with DEI. It puts someone like myself, who's been in IT, you know, IT for a number of years, mm-hmm. in question as to if I'm actually supposed to be there or did someone want me to fulfill a, a quota. 
Yeah, and that's a horrible thing. I wouldn't wish that on any. I remember saying that when the Rooney Rule was first uh, put in place in the NFL. I'd be thinking, if I'm a great coordinator and I do get hired, or even if I get an interview, which is an honor, um, did I get it because they really like the work I've done here, or are they trying to fulfill their quota? It would nag at you at, at me. That's not to say they shouldn't do it, or at least give opportunities for it. But I agree with you. I would I would have to wonder myself. And as to the other question. You're spot on about quotas, in my opinion, Adam Coleman, um, because, you know, diversity, when it comes to the D part of DEI or DIE, as I like to rephrase it, but uh, when it comes to that, they do, it does come with quotas. And strangely enough, let's go right back to Harvard. Now, this time, not Claudine Gay, but just obviously the uh, uh, the Supreme Court decision that Harvard and North Carolina, they were indeed being discriminatory against Asian students and white students by denying them places in freshman classes that they would have earned had merit been the sole determining factor. But when you consider... Uh, you know, the other factors such as race, in other words, appearance and so forth, they're trying to diversify the campus at the, at the, to the detriment of the others who are more qualified, academically speaking, to be there. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Harvard is at the forefront of all of this. Um, they practice what they preach, and they have no problem with it. And the other thing is they're a private institution with, I believe, over $50 billion in endowment. So they're, they're capable of uh, doing whatever they want and fulfilling whatever outcomes that they desire um, because they have the money to do so and they have the cachet to do so. Um, I think the Supreme Court coming down on them for racial practices, I think is incredibly important that it needed to happen. I'm not for affirmative action because if, if saying someone should get a job because they're white is bad, then saying someone should get a job because they're black is also bad, right? Reverse discrimination is discrimination. So I, the, the whole thing is that we're supposed to level the playing field by not having discriminatory practices. And that is actually the, the point. And the problem is that leftists believe the complete opposite. Leftists believe that black people are unable, unable to get a job unable to get an opportunity because of the structural systemic racism, you know. And so we must force these outcomes because they're unable to do so by themselves. And that is the most insidious part about it. That is the most insulting, uh, uh, I can't even think of enough words uh, to describe, to the idea that somebody, because of their skin color, cannot accomplish or cannot achieve that which somebody else can. Uh, and even you said, you know, black people can't, black people can't. According to these people, black people can't even get driver's licenses. That's why race, uh, uh, <laughs> that's why, that's why voter identification is so racist, they say, because black people don't have the capacity because of the system that's in place to go and get their own IDs for crying out loud. Again, I've said this for many years now, Adam, if I'm you, if I'm a black male or female in this country, I am livid at the American left for daring to suggest that I'm incapable of doing things that anybody or everybody else can without some somebody else doing it for me or, or lifting the requirement altogether. I've never met a black person in my life who was unable to get an ID. Not, not a single one. I've met people of all different economic ladders and situations. They all have ID. Even people who have government assistance have ID. They have to have ID. Everyone has identification. This is not abnormal, which is, which also it makes the whole um, having voter ID as a, as a standard, even more ridiculous, because they try to throw black people under the bus 
yeah. and say that, well, how is this going to affect black people? Ma- we Major have League Baseball. Major League <laughs> Baseball. You saw this two years ago. Major League Baseball took the all-star game out of Atlanta with the majority black population and the hundreds of millions of dollars of economic development that come with it and gave it to Lily White, Denver, Colorado, because Georgia dared to institute voter identification because it was it was suppressive. <laughs> it was suppressing black votes. I mean, think about that. They harmed black people in their attempt to, or what they claim to be their attempt to be defending black people who didn't have the capacity to get their own driver's licenses. It's ridiculous. It is every bit of that. Adam B. Coleman's uh, Twitter handle is wrong underscore speak. Wrong underscore speak because he is the founder of Wrong Speak Publishing as well as the president of Ain't Blackistan. Next time we talk, I'm going to have to talk more about that title too. Adam Coleman, thank you for coming on. Keep doing the great work that you are doing. And again, I want everybody to go and read that Newsweek article and share it as far and wide as you can so people truly understand what's going on here. Adam, thank you. God bless. Thank you. All right, it's 1130. Final time out. It will be followed by you if you dial now, 216-901-0945. Right back. Okay, 1136. Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Those are three very, very, very good interviews that we had this morning. Uh, and, again, I take no credit for them. It's the, it's the uh, content provided by Dave Yost, our Attorney General, who is in our number one. We spoke with Steve Gorham in hour number two on the ongoing assault on energy by the Biden administration and by global elites and how they are trying to force us into a green breakdown. Uh, And then, of course, we just had a great conversation on race, academia and um, and elections, quite frankly, with uh, Adam Coleman from uh, Wrong Speak Publishing. So the last segment is yours, 216-901-0945 or 888-281-1110. Sally has been waiting patiently in Berea. Sally, you're on the air. Go right ahead. Hi, Bob. Our election integrity in Ohio is at stake with these proposed constitutional changes. Mm -hmm. We saw what a disaster um, issue one and issue two was to run against all the... um, uh, all the extra um, donors for that. And the state of Ohio has historically been red, but that could all be changed by some of these open, openly admitted changes they want for voter ID and for unmanned drop boxes. And we know how the other elections have been impacted by that. Mm-hmm. We cannot allow this to happen in Ohio. Uh, Attorney General Yost said that he's not allowed to speak out on the policies. Well, we voters better speak out on it, and we better make it clear that if we don't have election integrity in Ohio, the red state may not remain that, and we cannot lose. We have to change the, the administration presently to survive as a republic in a after the 24 election. Thanks, Bob. All right. Thank you, Sally. Uh, I, I agree with every word uh, of what you said. Um, the election integrity issue is a serious one, and you're right. They can't win. Look, this is kind of the, the a general statement for the left, big picture, but certainly in the state of Ohio as well in terms of a more narrow scope, and that is that when elections are free and fair, they can't win them. Not in a state like Ohio. They can't win elections when they are free and fair. And that's why they have done their level best to make them not fair. To make them uh, literally skewed to the point where they are easily manipula- manipulated. 
able to be manipulated in a number of ways by way of drop boxes, by way of fraudulent uh, non-identifications, uh, people voting more than once, different locations, early voting expanded, all the different things, ballot harvesting, all the different things, same-day registration, automatic registration for people as soon as they uh, uh, go to the, the, the BMV. I mean, all of these things are efforts to make sure that the elections are not fair. When they're fair, they lose. And I hate to be as, as you know simplistic about that as it is, but it's true. When elections are actually for, uh, fair and free, they lose. Now, in Ohio, you said we've been traditionally red. I don't know if I'd say traditionally. Traditionally, we've been very purple. You know, we've had uh, runs of Democrat leadership and Democrat governors and Republican governors and different uh, uh, offices uh, in the state that our statewide offices are, you know, have, have gone back and forth a bit. But more recently, very red, very red. Trump won Ohio twice <clears throat> by eight points. We won all the statewide elections. Uh, we have super majorities in the, in the House and in the Senate in, in, the, uh, in Columbus. We have all of these things that prove we are very much a red state, yet they have power. How did they get power? One of the ways they do it is by manipulation. And yes, what you just described and what I described to Attorney General Yost, all of these different ways that they're trying to put into the Constitution of the state of Ohio by way of an amendment, to allow people to lie, cheat, and steal their way to electoral victories. It's all they have left to go on, honestly. So that's why it is so important. I'm glad uh, Attorney General Yost rejected it on the ballot language. Uh, Hopefully it gets rejected out of hand if it ever comes down to it uh, by the voters. All right. Thank you, Sally. Let's uh, do um, Tony in South Euclid. Hi, Tony. Go ahead. Yes, hi, Tony from South Euclid. Tony, you mentioned global warming or climate change or is it the natural form of what earth has been uh progressing excuse me all these years now both um yeah well you know i yeah because climate change is climate change is occurring it's natural that's the other part it's true what you just said it's been naturally occurring through all of these years decades centuries and quite frankly eons well, 2.6 million years, apparently, the scientists say. That's per the Internet. I still have to uh, confirm that. And 11,000 years ago is when, apparently, the uh, glaciers have been uh, starting to melt. Now, this is, you know, if anybody took went to science class in high school, when you take an ice cube and you set it in the middle of the room, does it melt consistently? No, it doesn't. And the scientists agree with me. So as it's melting, it's creating liquid water. The liquid water becomes warmer, and the ice cube melts faster. So it's the same situation that we have in our, in our world. The glaciers are melting faster because as it becomes warmer, as the, as the liquid ice, uh, liquid water uh, becomes liquid water, and it's frozen, frozen water, the frozen water, as it melts, is going to create higher temperatures, which is going to melt faster. Now, it's common sense. But again, yes, you're right. We were being manipulated by this. And it's not so-called, I don't know, I'm not a scientist, but uh, uh, the problem with our our carbons and, and uh, the other things that uh, I, I can't um, uh, expand on, but we, we know that... Uh, that there's other or so-called other ways of, of the scientists are saying that uh, 
that we're creating these warmer temperatures. And are we really creating these warmer temperatures? Well, there are some warmer temperatures that we can prove what's happened and how much lake area has, has frozen and uh, over the years and hasn't. But there's well, let, let, let me jump in on this, Tony, a little bit here in the interest of time. <clears throat> um, yes, there are warmer temperatures, but it always comes down to one question. Warmer than what? Warmer based on when did you start tracking? Because you can indeed show through time that this period is warmer than X other period. But if you go back further in time and find out it was colder and then warmer and then colder in other various periods, um, you'll find out that mankind had nothing to do with any of those things. Because mankind was not on this earth until very recently in, in the grand scheme of the, of, the, of the age of the earth. So, so when people say, well, it's the warmest time on record. Well, when did you start record keeping? And when are you actually referring to? This is the way they manipulate science. And then what they do is, is they say, oh, the science is settled. The science has been settled now because it's warm, because warmer than this time, than, warmer this time than it was at that time. And therefore, that's it. And then they'll dismiss any other science that is presented that shows, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's go back. The interview I did, and thank you, Tony, for the call. The interview I did with Steve Gorham, who I had on today, the TV interview, it includes a lot of graphics and um, uh, information uh, that, that you absolutely have to see to understand. The, the number of times that the planet has frozen and thawed and frozen and thawed over the course of history, it's all evidentiary. It's very easily uh, able to be, to be witnessed if you watch that. And if you pay attention and don't listen to those who tell you, no, the science is settled, man, mankind is responsible for global warming. That's all the time I've got for that subject right now. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my team. Thanks to you for listening. Be well, be safe, stay free. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.